This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. Antibiotic overuse in hospitals may be fueling the problem of drug-resistant infections. CDC researchers recently published data showing more than half of antibiotics prescribed in U.S. hospitals are not consistent with guidelines for when and how they should be used. Often they're prescribed for longer than is appropriate or prescribed without clear evidence of a bacterial infection. And those numbers don't even count all of the antibiotic prescriptions surgeons give their patients to take for a week or so after a procedure, just in case an infection tries to take root. Deborah Goff says doctors, hospitals, and patients all need to play a more active role in addressing overuse of antibiotics. Goff is a professor of pharmacy who leads antibiotic resistance efforts at The Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Goff, thanks for taking time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What's the thought process a doctor might go through in a hospital setting uh, when they are being a little bit going a little bit overboard with antibiotics in a patient? What are what are some of the reasons that might occur? Well, when you see a patient, there's fear of missing something, and antibiotics have been prescribed for decades really as uh, just in case there's an infection and it seems to be an easy fix to prescribe an antibiotic because they used to work for most infections. And so that's really where the behavior comes from is the fear of of failing and fear of doing nothing. And an antibiotic uh, fulfills that fear-based prescribing and they're misused a lot. Um, Do antibiotics clearly work as a preventative Like, can you, for example, you know, (laughs) surgeons will give antibiotic before they even cut somebody open. Does it work that way? (laughs) Or is it only after an infection is there? Yeah, so it's actually both. So that's called surgical prophylaxis. Prophylaxis is preventing an infection. Mm. And, you know, the practice of surgery would come to a screeching halt without antibiotics because many surgeries require that dose before the surgeon cuts into the patient. So something as simple as a C-section, if there was not an effective antibiotic to give to the patient before the surgeon started the C-section, a large percentage of women would die. In fact, in low middle income countries, that is the cause of death Mm. are the surgical site infections that occur because they aren't able to give them antibiotics. So they absolutely need to use antibiotics, but they need to use them more responsibly. So there's prophylaxis before a surgeon starts the surgery. And then there's what we call therapeutic. Now the patient comes to us with pneumonia. And so that's uh, a hospital admission. And then we have to prescribe antibiotics. And that's what the study was showing that the CDC did in over 192 hospitals is that we still have a lot of improvement that can be done. So as uh, you stated, over half of them were not supported. And that what they mean by that is there was a problem with the antibiotic. Either they gave too long of a duration. So they gave the right antibiotic for the right infection, but they gave it too long. And that's where I referred to, they prescribed football scores, seven, 10, 14 days Hmm. out of habit. And those habits are very hard to change. Um, And then some of the antibiotics were just prescribed wrong. I mean, there used to be many antibiotics to select from, But antibiotic resistance is really decreasing the antibiotic toolkit of effective antibiotics. And so we really have to do better because we are in what I call the silent pandemic. We see patients in the United States, I see them at our own hospital where they are fully resistant 
to all available antibiotics. And that really makes you pause as an infectious disease expert to realize you have an untreatable infection in front of you with a patient. How does so giving, even, how, how does giving, help us understand how giving um, the wrong antibiotic, like guessing wrong, giving the wrong antibiotic for an infection mm-hmm. or yeah. prescribing 14 days uh, when that's unnecessary, how does that translate to, yeah, it does it only, and is it in the person who's taken the antibiotics that the drug resistant bacteria is likely to, to set, to set in? So let's address a couple things. So the duration of therapy is, uh, from historical data. And now we have newer data that shows, for instance, in community acquired pneumonia, you can treat for five days, five days total, And so you have to educate physicians that learned 10 and 14 days 20 years ago when they were in medical school to change that prescribing habit. And old habits are hard to change. Mm. So it's constant education. So that's how we address that. The resistance occurs to the organism, not to the patient. So a patient doesn't develop resistance. It's the organism they're infected with that develops resistance to the antibiotic. And the more, you know, antibiotics are such a unique drug, the more we use them, the less effective they become. Just think of that. I mean, it's really a a paradox. The Mm. more we use them, the less effective they become because bacteria exist to live. And so they will find every mechanism to develop resistance to the antibiotic. So, so a doctor might be prescribing an antibiotic to a person just in case of an Mm -hmm. infection. Yep. And, and the potential consequence of it, of that could be that that person will develop some other kind of infection that no antibiotic can treat. That's correct. So when you give an antibiotic unnecessarily or even necessarily, your your gut has all different types of bacteria and the antibiotic can kill off the susceptible organisms, but it can't kill off the resistance ones. So you could be left with those and they can start to multiply and actually take over. And that becomes your primary source of infection. But there's so that can occur with any antibiotic. And then when they prescribe antibiotics, just in case there might be an infection, but they haven't really done any tests to prove it, which is also what was identified in this study, 50% of the patients they supposedly treated for a urinary tract infection didn't even have any symptoms. So, you know, they were treating what we call a culture result. Someone took a culture of their urine, it grew some bacteria but the patient had no signs or symptoms, but they felt compelled to treat it. And that's actually not appropriate to do that. And that's where 77% of the uh, urinary tract, quote, infections in that study uh, were actually unsupported by symptoms. So there's a lot of improvement that can take place. Does it actually happen, though, very often that somebody who's prescribed unnecessary antibiotics then themselves develops about a drug resistant infection that oh, leads to yes. serious injury or even death. Absolutely. You can get a single dose of an antibiotic and develop what we call this very toxic form of diarrhea called C. diff, Clostridium difficile. And that can actually result in the death of a patient. Most people will just have very severe diarrhea, which is really inconvenient, but it can progress into a surgical emergency called toxic megacolon. Literally your colon explodes in you and you can only Mm -hmm. imagine what that does to you. It creates an overwhelming uh, condition called sepsis and, and patients die from that. And yes, there are patients who have received a single dose of an antibiotic and developed this toxic form of C. diff and actually died. So you never want to take an antibiotic when it's not necessary. And actually other studies have shown one in five patients who receive an antibiotic will experience an adverse reaction that either causes them to go to a doctor, go to the emergency room, or actually get hospitalized. One in five. Mm. So they're not as benign as people think, and they're certainly not as benign as physicians like to think. And therefore we do a lot of educating 
on trying to change the prescribing. I'm speaking with Deborah Goff, who's a professor of pharmacy at The Ohio State University. She is leading the uh, efforts to address antibiotic overuse at the Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. I want to talk about the length of time that you're supposed to take an antibiotic. I've, I've received them all over my life, the five days, the seven days, the 10 days. I don't think I've ever had 14 I days. Football yeah, yes. luckily. But um, I thought, I mean, for a while we were hearing, I, I would have a doctor give me a very serious talking to, and, you know, they, they would say, look, you know, this is a seven-day course and you must take every single one of those days. Don't skip a day, even if it, you know, even if you, you don't like the side effects because, and I thought the justification here was related to drug resistance. Like, if you only just partly knock out the bacteria, if you only take five days, then you're giving the bacteria more of a chance to develop a resistance. You got to like whack right. them with the full course. Otherwise, right. you're you're um, potentially just weakening them and allowing them to to mutate. So I'm really confused that you would say yes. that taking taking a longer course is more problematic for um, for right. drug resistance. Well, it really it is. It is correct that you can weaken the bacteria and uh, continue to have infections. So it really de depends what infection we're talking about. So, you know, we had these historical long durations of 10 and 14 days, but we have had many studies now that have shown we actually can treat some infections shorter, not every infection. So there absolutely are infections specific types, and it depends on what type of bacteria is causing your infection, where a 14-day course, some even 21 days hmm. would be required in seriously ill patients. But something like a urinary tract infection, we know now that some of them can be treated for as short as three days. We didn't know that 20 years ago. Hmm. And community-acquired pneumonia, there are six studies that have shown you can treat for five days. So even though four years ago, you might've had a bout of pneumonia and was told take seven days at the time that was correct. Mm -hmm. It no longer is correct. And, and what's the harm? What's the harm then of taking the extra five or three so, or five yeah. days? So there is harm. Every day you take an antibiotic increases your risk of C. diff, mm. the toxic form of diarrhea. Every day you continue taking an unnecessary antibiotic, you can actually create antibiotic resistance. So you're correct. The, or the antibiotic is killing off the good bacteria, but it's leaving behind some of these antibiotic resistant bacteria that could be in your gut unchecked. And it also changes the gut microbiome. So I'm sure you've heard a lot about probiotics and, you know, why eat yogurt and all right. those uh, initiatives. That's your microbiome. When you take an antibiotic and the longer you take it, the more disruption to your microbiome, you actually can alter the bacteria for up to a year. So there's a lot of consequences to taking longer than what's necessary. How are doctors supposed to know exactly which antibiotic to prescribe for a specific infection? So in the hospital setting, we get cultures and it might be a blood culture. If we think you have a blood infection, a urine culture, and then we can get the microbiology test and it tells us exactly what type of bacteria and it tells us what antibiotic is susceptible, meaning it would work to it. But how In long does that usually take though? Doesn't it usually take yeah, 48, 72 a hours? question. So it can take up to four days. So mm -hmm. a lot of hospitals, like at Ohio State, we have what's called rapid diagnostic test. So if you have a blood infection, once that grows in this microbiology bottle, it takes about 18 hours for the bacteria to grow. In two hours, we can identify the organism. It's game changing. We implemented that in 2010, but not all hospitals offer that. And in the community setting where most of the antibiotics are prescribed in the outpatient arena, those rapid diagnostic tests are not available. And there lies the problem. When a physician can't make a definitive diagnosis, they prescribe the antibiotics just in case. You know, many respiratory infections are viral but it could be bacterial. And when you can't definitively identify which one it is, you'll prescribe an antibiotic thinking it might just be a bacterial infection and therefore 
we have a lot of overprescribing due to lack of diagnostics. Right, right. And the last thing you want is for your patient to end up in uh, with, with with a serious infection, having it escalate, and that's going to happen, yeah. of course, in the middle of the night, and then the fever is going <laughs> to spike, and then, you know, and then sepsis can be a really scary thing. Like it's just so, you know, a bacterial infection can happen can escalate so quickly. Um, and I speak from personal experience here that it's terrifying to think that you would take the risk and not prescribe an antibiotic knowing that that could be the outcome. I mean, how do we overcome right. that fear? So it's a balance. And you're correct. Sepsis is life threatening. You can go from just feeling bad to death in 12 hours. So there's actually the uh, sepsis campaign to get an antibiotic in within uh, two hours. So it's a balance. You can give an antibiotic but when the laboratory results come back that do not support a bacterial infection or the cultures come back negative, as this study showed, then the right thing to do is you stop the antibiotic. And unfortunately, what this mm. study, the CDC just did showed is a lot of them just continue on. They simply forget that the patient, you know, when you're in the hospital, there's a lot of different things going on with the patient. An antibiotic might just be part of the problem the patient's occurring in the hospital. So quite honestly, sometimes they just forget they're on mm. them and they continue. Yeah. And that's what is easy to change. Yeah. Well, tell me about some of the changes um, that you're that you're working on and encouraging other hospitals to implement. How, how do you how, yep. how do you get doctors and nurses to think about antibiotics differently? Yeah. So as a clinical pharmacist in infectious diseases, we run what we call an antibiotic stewardship program, meaning we oversee the use of antibiotics in the hospital. So it's a team-based approach with an infectious disease trained physician, pharmacist, microbiologist, infection control nurses, and they're actually required in all U.S. acute care hospitals as of 2017, because just asking doctors to change their antibiotic prescribing behavior sounds good, except it just doesn't work. And sure. so in 2017, these antibiotic stewardship programs became mandatory. So every hospital has these and, and they oversee, the teams oversee the use of antibiotics. So this study that was just published was actually done in 2015 before these antibiotic stewardship programs were required. Many hospitals had them in place, but they weren't required. So hopefully if we did this study today in 2021, we would have better results than this, but it's a uh, constant education because information changes and new antibiotics come to the market. How does a physician learn about that new antibiotic? You know, someone has to teach them about it. And so it's constant education. And how do I, and as I think, a patient, how, is there anything I can do as a patient to try to avoid taking unnecessary yes, antibiotics? Absolutely. If you get admitted to a hospital and they prescribe you an antibiotic, absolutely ask the doctor, what is my infection? Why am I taking antibiotics? And how long do you plan to treat me? And you ask every day if they're still necessary. That's absolutely something I encourage every patient to do. And if you're on the outpatient side and you feel a cold and sniffles coming on and you think you might be getting bronchitis, and you don't have time to get sick, don't ever go to your doctor and pressure them to prescribe you an antibiotic, which is part of the problem. So consumers really need to realize antibiotics have risk and you don't want to expose your body to antibiotics unnecessarily. So asking your doctor to prescribe them is never a good idea. Let them listen to your symptoms and then you can come to a shared decision. And if my doctor prescribes me 10 days of an antibiotic for an infection that I clearly have, but then after five days, I'm feeling much, much, much better. Can I just stop taking the antibiotic? Nope. I would say you call your doctor. Hopefully when they prescribe 10 days, it's for an infection that actually requires 10 days, but those infections are becoming fewer and fewer. Mm -hmm. So it could be the doctor's information is outdated and you actually only need five days. So if you get a 10 day prescription, the first thing I would ask is, do you really think I need 10 days? and see what they say. If you feel better at the end of five, you call the office and say, you know, I am totally asymptomatic. Do you think it's necessary for me to continue taking this? And what we've learned in the last couple years, 
with newer data for many types of infections, five days is enough, but not every infection, but it's a great discussion to have with your physician. Deborah Goff is a professor of pharmacy, head of efforts to reduce antibiotic resistance at The Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Goff, thank you for your time today. Really, I I learned a lot. (laughs) Really great information that you shared. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Video editing technology is so good, it's getting harder and harder to tell what's fake and what's real. Now these deep fakes, as they're called, are popping up in satellite imagery. Imagine the harm a fake satellite image could do if it's used to spread false stories about what a political enemy is up to, or to create a hoax about a natural disaster that supposedly happened somewhere in the world, and it didn't. Sam Gregory is an expert on video and photo manipulation. He's with a nonprofit called Witness, which uses video to document human rights violations. Sam Gregory, welcome. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Glad to be here. How important is satellite imagery to the work you do at Witness? It's a critical tool um, because satellite imagery are these these eyes in the sky that help you um, determine what's true and what's false. Um, So many times journalists and human rights activists uh, will find, say, a video that shows, uh, you know, human rights atrocity in a war zone, and they'll compare the videos that someone shared on social media, but they'll also look at the satellite image to see whether it makes sense that something actually took place on that corner on that day. Uh, Or they'll look at a set of images, um, as activists have done, to show that a government burnt down you know, hundreds of villages in a rural area where you don't have access. So it's these set of critical eyes in the sky that complement all the other investigative tools that we have as journalists and activists. Hasn't it always been possible to doctor images, though? How, how are deep fakes different from what's what's been possible previously, where someone could mess with the video feed and sort of eliminate or cut out whole images or something, you know, to kind of mislead if they wanted to? Exactly. And it's, you know, it's it's true that we've had photo and video manipulation since we've had photos and video, right? You know, think mm-hmm. about Stalin uh, editing people out of photos from from Soviet uh, from the Soviet Union. What, really? What deepfakes did, like, yeah, for for what did, purpose? When they fell out of favor, right? You know, you take someone out of the photo, uh, right? So it's, okay. uh, yeah. you know, Stalin removed a lot of people from photos, <laughs> I think we can safely say, given who he was. Um <laughs> So, so deepfakes, you know, like, you know, your, your listeners are probably familiar with this ability to, you know, create realistic um, photos and videos of things that never existed, right? Those Tom Cruise TikToks or, you know, even that deep nostalgia app where you could reanimate your, your, your ancestor. Mm. Um, what's different with these things is they allow you to do a couple of things. One is to make it more realistic looking, right? So you can make a realistic satellite image that never existed, right? An image that looks like it should be real, but is entirely made up. Um, but looks realistic, you can increasingly tweak things within the image, right? Which is a little bit similar to what, you know, the Stalin example or the adding something in. And then there's another dimension that I think is really important, and this comes up a lot, is often these satellite images, it's, yes, humans looking at them, but it's also machines. And one thing you can do is you can also fool the machines. Mm. So, you know, you and I might look at that satellite image and say, think we see what we see, but the machine that's analyzing might see something completely different. Which would mean that you'd miss it, potentially, your, your algorithm that's scanning for signs of some sort of activity might miss it because... It, exactly. It might miss it or it might, um, or it might think it saw something that didn't exist, right? So it might think it saw a village that wasn't actually there, if you take the example I was sharing about the burnt villages. And, mm. you know, one of the biggest things we've been seeing happening, and a lot of my work is on, you know, deepfakes, not satellite images, but just regular, you know, someone sharing a video or a photo that's manipulated and... The biggest problem often is not that something has been deepfaked, it's that everyone can claim anything is deepfaked, right? So it's uh, 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 people talk about as this thing called the liar's dividend, which is this ability for anyone to basically say uh, anything true is false, right? And so one of the things that's important about this is you're basically also potentially just trying to make it harder for people to trust any image, whether it's a satellite image or a video. And so if you can insert these mistakes, if you can create doubt in people's minds, 
maybe doesn't matter so much whether any given image or satellite image is, is messed with. Yeah. So I guess from the example you gave earlier about some of the work you've done at Witness, if if the com- if the country um, that is accused of burning down the villages can say, well, that picture is not real. You can't prove that picture of villages being burned down is real. It's a deep fake. Maybe Witness made it up. Right. So uh, so then you can't believe anything you see. And at that point, what does an organization like yours do if if video is you know so fundamental to sort of proving human rights violations? Yeah, and, and you know, and it's they can claim that you know that video or photo or satellite image is manipulated, or they can just say we just don't have enough confidence now, right? You know, anything could be faked, so you know what, like let's not trust things. And of course, that benefits people who have real power versus people who are trying to you know point out what's wrong in the world. You know, the way we've been approaching it, and we we spend a lot of time over the last three years really trying to get ahead of this problem, mm. you know, because it really matters to us. You know, our work is to support people to be able to show the truth with video and images. Um, is, is to actually, first thing is to try and damp down the panic, because, um, you know, every, strange enough, every time I read a headache, uh, a headline, excuse me, it gives <laughs> me a headache when I see something like deep fakes are going to destroy our reality, mm. because we're, we're not surrounded by deep fakes. You know, we're surrounded by people, you know, trying to pass things off that aren't real, but usually it's, you know, just changing the caption, not, you know, using sophisticated AI. And every time we say that, we we increase the possibility for people to claim that any image is fake when most aren't. So one thing is to really damp down the rhetoric and be realistic. Um, and the second part is to say, look, you know, we're going to have more manipulation and a lot of it's fun, right? I like switching my face with, you know, other people in an app and I, you know, I quite <laughs> like the, you know, being able to reanimate my grandmother in a, in a photo, right? So this is not necessarily malicious, what we do need to do, though, is have good tools to be able to, to spot this manipulation um, so that, you know, people don't have the easy ability just to claim something is fake. And, you know, and, and that's a tough technical challenge. It's not easy to, to come up with ways to spot, you know, deep fake manipulation. But we really need to, to invest in that. And we need to make sure it's available broadly. Right. So it can't just be that's available to the, the governments um, because not everyone trusts governments, right? Uh, you know, and so we need to have them available to media and, and activists as well. Right, right. So you'd want to be able to trust that, say, the um, you know the Department of National Intelligence, Office of National Intelligence, at uh, you know in, in the United States or the CIA can look at a satellite image and they have a way of determining if it's been faked or tampered with. But but if it, but but I, is the larger concern then that? that a, a faked video or image goes viral and somehow convinces a lot of people to do something harmful. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I, I probably worry less about the satellite images for that than, you know, the video that shows, you know, someone in a public space or, a, you know, a public figure doing something, you know, um, shocking or horrifying or illegal or corrupt. Right. Um, you know, and so, so I, it's definitely these things can get out of control and, and, and jump before people expect it. Um, I was actually just involved with a case in, in the country Myanmar in Southeast Asia where, you know, a video started circulating that showed um, someone, um, a, a senior politician making a confession apparently to corruption. Uh, and immediately everyone said it must be a deep fake, right? And they, and they tried to sort of test it in these things you can find online and it spread very quickly in social media. And the problem was it probably wasn't a deep fake, right? That people don't have the tools to check these kinds of things. It was probably just someone forced to confess because they're being held by a military government that just had a coup. So we have to be careful to not jump to the assumption that things are deep faked. We play into that, you know, the suspicions and the worries and this kind of collapse of belief that we can trust things we see. And, and we're not yet at that point. Is there no algorithm? I mean, if a if an artificially intelligent software program can create a convincing fake image or video, is is there also an artificially intelligent algorithm that can decode that and say, oh, I see the fingerprints here of a deep fake? Yeah, and, and that's exactly the dynamic that you have going on around creating these deep fakes, whether it's a photo, a video, or a satellite image, and detecting them. It's sort of a cat and mouse game. Um, they're known as generative adversarial networks, which means, you know, really you set one um, AI network to create fake images and the other to detect them. Right. And so that can work both ways. Right. You can be you know, training your network to to create that fake satellite image or you'd be training your network to spot the fake images. So it's always going to be this kind of cat and mouse game of creating fakes and spotting them with the sa- exactly the same types of algorithms. Um, the problem often is, is that when you when you do that kind of cat and mouse game, there are things you can do 
to make it harder for the detection to work, right? You know, you could use a new approach that you, know, you haven't trained an algorithm to spot, or you could, you know, change the resolution of the image. So to date, we don't have great ways of spotting these um, deep faked images. Um, so we have to be a little bit careful on, on relying on the assumption we'll spot them. Um, and then the other part of it is this, uh, what I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, in fact, part of this is sometimes also not trying to confuse the human, but trying to confuse a machine. So, you know, what you can do is just put in, just change a pixel or two in a satellite image to make um, a computer think that a, um, a village is an empty field or a bridge is not there. And I think those are the things that are probably more worrying in, say, the kind of commercial and military applications of this, because they're the ones that allow you to basically mess with people who are trying to understand the images uh, they see in satellites and perhaps confuse a military or confuse someone who's trying to understand, you know, the agricultural patterns in a particular location. How would that work in a military situation? What would the example so be? So the example that, that's often been cited is, um, you know, someone releasing a satellite image uh, that contains one of these manipulations. They're called sort of adversarial interventions where you just change a few pixels and computer vision, which is analyzing that, that, that satellite image, misidentifies it because it doesn't actually see a bridge. It sees a pattern of pixels that it understands as a bridge. So mm. human eye sees a bridge or doesn't see a bridge in the satellite image. Computer eye sees something different. So the, the scenario that uh, yeah, has been shared publicly by the military is, you know, um, a hostile government releases a satellite image or shares a satellite image that has been tampered to imply that there is a, a route for troops to, to march down that doesn't exist or a route that does exist has been concealed and this gives them a tactical advantage in military operations. Yeah. Well, but I mean, in that case, then you just don't believe the images that your your adversary releases. Everybody's got their own satellite. So just trust your own machine instead. Exactly. And a lot of a lot of the work around deepfakes is also to say we need, you know, sort of more images, right? Mm -hmm. We, you know, like to cross check you know, it's, and it's, exactly if you can cross check and and that's how, you know, when when people in journalism or human rights, when they're trying to work out, you know, if they find a video online and they're trying to work out if it's true or not, you know, they already cross check. They cross check between the satellite image and the, the Google map or the Google Earth image and other videos and you know, we have to get better at doing that and not necessarily just assuming that, you know, the single image or video tells the truth. And absolutely with a satellite image, you know, don't trust your adversary's images. Um, but know also that, like, you know, that as this gets more and more commercialized, that there are more and more image providers and we need to double check across different providers. Um, and you said, finally, Sam Gregory, you said a moment ago that um, that most of the sort of altered, falsified images out there are really not that convincing or sophisticated, right? So, so what what are some of the rules of thumb just for the general um, internet user to kind of, you know, know whether or not they might be looking at a deep fake? Yeah. So first of all, probably you're not <laughs> right mm -hmm. now, um, and I think that's a good starting point is to say you're probably not looking at a deep fake if it's if you're worried that something is, you know, deceiving your eyes, um, you know, over 90% of the images and videos we encounter as, you know, try and verify a, a what we call shallow fakes, which are just miscontextualized images. So someone claims something is from one place or one time and, you know, and then just shifts the time and location says, you know, this is Ohio this year rather than Idaho the year before, mm. you know. Um, and for those, really, the key is to actually just do something. And we use, we describe a methodology called SIFT that is a media literacy methodology. And SIFT stands for four things. It's first is stop um, before you share it without thinking. Uh, then investigate the source, right? Do you know where this comes from? Um, find alternate coverage. That's the F, right? Are there other things around this? And then I think this is particularly important for images and videos is trace the original, which is, you know, for 90% of these videos and photos, they're just someone recycling a video or photo. So just pop it into Google Image Search and see if it existed before. Sam Gregory is the program director at Witness, which helps people use video and technology to protect human rights. Thanks a lot for your time today, Sam. Thank you, Judy. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today, we've collected some of our favorite interviews from past years. Thanks for listening. About a quarter of Americans have a fear of needles, for good reason. And that prevents many of those people from getting important shots like the COVID-19 vaccine. But there's a new injection method that might change that. It ditches the long, scary needle for a patch with lots of teeny tiny needles. And here's the best part. 
it doesn't hurt like a normal shot. Mark Prausnitz is one of the researchers developing this microneedle patch. He's a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at Georgia Tech. Professor Prausnitz, thank you for joining us. Thanks for your interest. What does it feel like to get a shot from this patch? Well, I guess first of all, I would say maybe we shouldn't use the term shot because it's not something that is really akin to a shot. It doesn't look like a shot. doesn't feel like a shot. It's more like sticking a Band-Aid on your skin. So when, when, the, when this microneedle patch is applied, you feel, of course, the pressure of somebody pushing something against your skin. You feel a kind of a, a rough texture, maybe like if someone took some Velcro or something and pressed that against your skin. So there, there is a roughness that you detect, but it's not something that people describe as painful. So no prick. You, can't, you, you don't really know there's like a needle going into you. That's right. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't feel like a needle. There's some people say maybe it's a little the tingling sensation. I mean, you do feel, you're aware that something's going on, but but it's definitely not what you feel of the, the the pain or the prick of a hypodermic needle. What does this patch look like? Uh, it looks like a little sticker, so it's maybe you know an inch by an inch in size, something like that. Uh, and you put it onto the skin. You press with your thumb. That pressing action is what gets these microscopic needles to go into the very surface of your skin. And in our favorite design, there's a, a little clicker on the backside. So if you want to know how hard to push, you just push on it until it goes click. And when it makes the click, then you know you pushed hard enough and the needles are in. It Does it look kind of like a, 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 one of those really small Band-Aids? Is that kind of, that's what I'm picturing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it does look similar to one of those you know, sort of round little Band-Aids that you put on a, a small cut that you might have. And if I turned it to the side with the needles on it, well, you said they're microscopic, so I wouldn't even be able to see the needles? That's right. So if, if you look very carefully at it, you can see that there is a texture there. It doesn't look like a smooth surface. There, there's something there. But if you zoomed in with a microscope and really took a close look, then you'd see a number of microscopically small conical structures. So these are solid microneedles. They're not hollow. They're not doing injections like a hollow hypodermic needle does. Uh, so there are these solid pointy things that are on there. But again, you, you can't see them without magnification. So how, how thin is one of these needles? Uh, the needle will, will taper to an extremely sharp tip. The, the tip is about the size of a cell, uh, 10 microns or less. At its base, when it tapers to the, to the widest part, uh, that is uh, much thinner than a hair. Wow. And how many of these needles are there on the patch? Often we'll have about 100 of them. Okay. If they're still, still needles, how does it not hurt? Is it just because they're so small that it just... I, don't, I, don't, I just don't, I don't understand how that would work. Uh, it, it's because they're so small. So if you, um, if you have one of these tiny needles that goes through the very first outer layer of your skin, and, and there are no nerve endings in the very first outer layer, then you go a little bit deeper, and indeed there are some nerve endings there, but these needles are so small that the odds that they encounter one of those nerve endings and stimulate that nerve ending and give you the sensation of pain is, is very low. So as a result, as I said before, you feel something, not like you avoid nerve endings altogether, but it's not, it's not enough to, be, uh, to feel painful. But isn't there a reason traditional needles are as long as they are, the hypodermic needles, the injection needs to get deeper into the skin? Uh, yes and no. I mean, sure, there is a reason why the needles are long, and it has more to do with the, uh, just the, the process of giving an injection. The very outer layer of the skin, it's called stratum corneum, that's the barrier layer. That's why when stuff spills on your skin, you don't just absorb it in. It's, it's our protection, and it's great that it's there. We'd like to get across it, though, of course, sometimes. That layer is extremely thin. It's 10 or 20 micrometers, so much thinner than a piece of paper. Once you're beyond that layer, then you're, quote, in the body. And that's why if you use a microneedle, if you just get in that deep, past that layer and, and into the parts of the body where you have blood vessels and, and where you have living cells and so forth, the microneedle is able to work. So now, why, why then use the big needle? Right. Well, there are a few reasons. I mean, one of them is it's, uh, it's hard to make needles this small. These days, 
we can make them. It's not so hard. But go back a few decades, and the, the microfabrication industry, the industry that makes really tiny things on a, on a large commercial scale, had difficulty making these small things. So that's why over the last few decades there, there has been work on microneedles because we can actually make them. But there's an additional reason as well, which is if you press on your skin, even gently, the skin deforms, right? It's not a rigid, flat surface. Right. So if you take a very short needle and you press it against the skin, it may just dimple the skin. It may just you know, bend it a little bit and not actually go in. So you need to design the needle and, and the, the patch that it sits on in the right way so that the needle actually does go in. If you have a really long needle, you don't have that problem. You press the needle, the skin may deform a little bit, but you, you got you know, an inch of needle there. And so if it, the skin deforms a fraction of an inch, who cares? The needle ultimately does go in. So it's just easier to use absent the right design to make a microneedle patch. So then with the microneedle patch, do you have to press really hard to make sure it actually breaks the skin? Uh, you have to press firmly. You press maybe like when you, when you press on an, an elevator button. You know, you have to, it's a little bit firm. You've got to give a good push on that elevator button to make the light turn on. It's a force comparable to that. Okay. But where does the, the actual vaccine or whatever substance you're trying to inject into the body, where does it go if, if, these are, if it's like a Band-Aid and it doesn't have the normal like vile part of the shot or the, the needle that you normally see? Um, where does it go? So when you get an injection with a, a vaccine, so a liquid injection, the usual way you get it, you are getting 99.99, you know, many nines percent water. Most oh. of what you're getting is water. Just a tiny little bit of vaccine in there. Huh. And, well, you, you, you could inject just a tiny little bit of, of water that would contain the vaccine in it, but that's just difficult to do. You need a syringe of a certain size that you push on, you see you've injected it. So it gets diluted a lot just to make it practical for people to, to handle it and give the injections. So we get rid of all that water. We don't, we don't need the water. Our system's actually completely dry. So we just take that little bit of vaccine, and we then mix it up with some other materials, put it into a mold, and mold the vaccine plus the other stuff into a microneedle. And then that microneedle is incorporated as part of a, of a whole patch. So that's, that's how we can get the vaccine dose in, because uh, we, we just get rid of all the water, which we don't need or, or quite frankly, want. Okay, so it's actually inside of the needle, just already prepackaged. Um, and then when you press it, does it come out? So the, the needle is the vaccine, right? The needle is made of vaccine and some other stuff mixed in with it, some sugars and some, some polymers. Uh, so it's not like there's a needle and there's the vaccine that's somehow in it or on it or something. The needle is the vaccine. It's oh. one and the same. Okay, instead of it being like the passageway for the vaccine to go through, like a normal needle, a traditional needle, it's the it's actually made from the vaccine. That's so, that's wild. Um, so then, then how does it work? Does it dissolve? Yeah. So we uh, we mix in with that that vaccine to make the whole needle. We'll mix in oftentimes sugars. Uh, Sugar like, you know, what, what we eat or, an, or a different kind of sugar. I like to use sucrose, for example. Uh, and then we may also add some kind of a, a polymer material, so a bigger, stronger molecule to help give the microneedle more strength. And make it uh, sharp. Well, so that gives it the strength, uh, which allows it to be strong enough when we use a mold that, that is very sharp. If, you, if the needle's weak, then the, the tip right. may break off or the tip may bend. So we do need that strength associated with having a good sharp tip. I'm speaking with Mark Prausnitz. He is a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at Georgia Tech. Professor Prausnitz, because of these different things that you've talked about, that the needle dissolves, that the, the vaccine is actually part of the needle, it is the needle, um, how would that change the future of vaccines and being able to get, get vaccines or other types of shots to, to people around the world? What got us started with this is what, what we all think of when we think of getting injections is we don't want the pain. So if we can take that big needle and, and make it small, we can get rid of the pain. And, and indeed, that is true. But I think there's some other important 
components of having a patch to administer a vaccine as opposed to a needle. And so one is that it's a dry formulation. It's not a liquid. And biomolecules are, like vaccines, are generally more stable in a dry state. That's why the COVID vaccine, for example, you know, some of the vaccines, they have to be frozen at really cold temperatures. So they got to put it in a, in, a, in a solid state to keep everything sort of in place and, and not, uh, not becoming damaged because the molecules can move around. So you can make something solid by freezing it, or you can make something solid by drying it. So, so that's another advantage here where we can have greater stability without refrigeration. Mm. Another thing is the ease of administration. So now, uh, are, are you going to go give someone a shot? Well, maybe if you have the right training, but are you able to take a, a little Band-Aid and stick it on somebody, which in this case would have microneedles on it? Uh, yeah, you can. It, it's not something that requires special training. So we could even administer, envision self-administration in scenarios where that would be appropriate and needed. We can envision in places where there aren't enough healthcare personnel, when there are vaccination campaigns or in other kinds of remote locations, you don't need to have somebody with the training of a doctor or a nurse to give the vaccine. You could just go distribute these patches and then, yeah, that's people could just do it themselves. Do you then ima- imagine a future where people would just go to the store and buy their own vaccines and just t- put, put them on themselves? I can in certain circumstances. So, for example, if you need to get your measles vaccine and you're going to the, uh, you're bringing your kid to the doctor anyway and kid's getting a checkup and, and then you, you get your vaccine while you're there, there isn't necessarily a great advantage to being able to self-administer in that kind of a scenario. But in another scenario, like the annual flu shots we're all supposed to get, um, most of us are not normally going to the doctor at the time when we need our flu vaccines. We have to make a special trip to the doctor or to the pharmacy or wherever you go. It's a special effort that you have to go to. If you could pick this up in the, in the grocery store on your way home and apply it on yourself, that would make the vaccine much more accessible. So I think it depends on the vaccine and the setting when it's being used. And how much need is there for vaccines to be more accessible, especially in other countries that have people living more rurally or just lower socioeconomic statuses? Um, how, how much of a difference would this make? How big of a deal would it be? So I think the, the easier explanation is in developing countries where there aren't enough healthcare resources. So there it could make a big difference if you remove the need for that expertise to give the vaccine that just isn't there in insufficient quantity. When we come to this country, then there are the special settings, um, particular vaccines that are not part of the standard childhood vaccination series when you're with the doctor anyway. So it's, it's like the flu vaccine, like the COVID vaccine, uh, like the HPV vaccine that's given to, to adolescents and teenagers. So uh, those kinds of settings, it makes sense to, to, to offer more convenient options. But I should point out that these patches are not only for vaccines. They could administer other kinds of drugs as well. Mm. And that's where I think it becomes even more interesting for, for uh, anybody, even living in you know, the big city with a health clinic down the road. If you need to take a shot every day or multiple times a day, for example, as diabetics do with, right. with insulin or other kinds of drugs that people need on a, on a routine basis, if you could do that yourself with a patch at home rather than have to go to the clinic every time that that's needed, then there's a real opportunity uh, for, for people anywhere around the world. And could it even administer multiple doses? Uh, could you leave it on and, and it could give you, you know, one dose at one time in the day and then another dose later on if people need more, multiple doses of something? Yes. But what we're actually emphasizing more is one where the patch comes on and off quickly, but the drug keeps being delivered for a longer time. Hmm. So, for example, we have designed microneedles that are made out of biodegradable materials that, that dissolve and degrade very slowly, and we've encapsulated within them contraceptive hormone. So in this case, a, a patch can be applied to the skin there is at the interface of the needle and the patch backing uh, a weakness so that when you press the patch on and then you pull the patch back off again, the needles don't come back out of the skin. They stay in the skin. And so as far as the, the user is concerned, the patch came on, the patch came off, and you're done. 
but actually there's something in your skin, and it's staying there a while, and in this case it's staying there for a month, and during that month the contraceptive hormone is being released. So a woman who would like to have contraception could stick a patch on, take it off once a month, and could then have a continuous delivery of the contraceptive. This could be applied to other drugs as well. That would definitely be a game changer. Uh, But the real question is, I guess, we haven't talked about this. How effective is this? Have you tested this on humans to see how well it actually works at delivering drugs? Yes, we have. So a lot lot of our work is just done in the laboratory. But when when we've done enough to be confident that we're, we're ready to do a human study, then we have done human studies. One study, sort of the first big one that we did, involved flu vaccination. So we made these microneedles out of flu vaccine and some other water-soluble materials. We pressed the patches onto people, took them off, and then we looked at their immune response to the flu vaccine. We compared the conventional intramuscular injection to the microneedle patch at at the same dose. Uh, And we also even had one group where where people self-administered the microneedle patches to themselves. And uh, in all three of those scenarios, we got very similar immune responses. So that, I think, was a nice proof of principle that we can vaccinate effectively using a patch and people can even do it themselves. So how long before we actually see this out in, you know, for people to actually use? Uh, I think it's still a few years away. So we have done first studies in humans. But the, you know, the really big studies, and, and probably ev- everyone's aware these days from, from all the attention with the COVID vaccination, how the process works, there's the phase one and the phase two and the phase three clinical trials that need to take place. And although they happen to, in a year with COVID vaccine, that's not the norm. It usually takes a number of years. So we've gotten right. to phase one, and so we're working towards the phase two and the phase three. Mark Prausnitz is a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at Georgia Tech. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Enjoyed telling you about it. I'm Ciara Hewlett. This is Top of Mind. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It has been great having you with us today for this curated episode of the show from our archives. You know, we've been on the air every weekday since 2015. And there are so many conversations we've had during that time that are worth another listen. When we started the show back then, our goal was to dig deep, because no matter how clear cut you think an issue is, there's always another perspective. And there's likely to come a moment while listening to Top of Mind when you think, huh, that had not occurred to me. You can tap into the full Top of Mind archive on the free BYU Radio app. And we'd love to have you connect with us on social media to let us know what you think of the show. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.